friends, this is Steve Schramm. Of course, you're listening to the Steve Schramm Show. This is episode number 87. We want to talk for a little while this morning about the recent burning of the Notre Dame Cathedral, give some of the kind of implications, the theological and uh, apologetic questions that might arise out of that circumstance. And then we want to answer some questions for you. Do something a little different this time around. Hey, don't forget that we are sponsored by the Creation Academy. Just head over to creationcourses.com where you can learn more about how to get signed up for individual courses there. Or you can sign up for our all access program at just $34 per month. It's a great way to learn more about God's world and how it matches up with God's Word. That's what we teach over there, so we pray that you will consider joining us as we add more courses as time goes on. Thank you so much, creationcourses.com. Well, we appreciate you joining us. We want to do something just a little bit different this time around. Um, I want to start out with some opening remarks uh, and then want to go to some questions afterward. And this might be something that we do on a regular basis, depending on what the response is like. We might just start doing that. I find uh, go out and find questions online. Um Quora is a really great place to find questions people are asking about Christianity, and they answer they ask questions that aren't typically very standard. In other words, they have very good, very insightful questions that help us to be able to understand how people are thinking. And so I think to answer some of those questions publicly um, would be very, very helpful for many people. I haven't mentioned this in a long time, but if you have a question, you can just go to steveschram.com, and on the very right-hand side of the website, you're going to find a bar that says, Ask a Question. All you have to do is hit that, and then hit Start Recording, and you can ask using your voice any question that you might have. All right? And so that way, uh, we'll actually play your voice. If you do that, I'm going to assume it's okay with you that we play your voice on air. We play your question on air. And so we'll do that. Or, of course, you could always send an email to steve at steveschram.com and we can get your question that way and answer it right here on the show. So if you have your own questions, I would love to be able to answer those each week here on the show. But until that time, um, maybe we'll just try answering some questions from online to make things a little bit more interesting. Okay, so I want to start out uh, by offering a few thoughts around the burning of, of, of Notre Dame. You know, um, there, uh, of course, this is, we're, uh, I guess, a little over a week removed from that event now. Surely you've heard of this. Uh, if not, just for a quick recap, essentially what we have is the Notre Dame Cathedral uh, basically went up in flames. It's like an eight or 900-year-old cathedral that has been kind of a hallmark uh, for Christianity in Paris and definitely a very very beautiful structure definitely a tragic loss anytime you have something like that that happens now by the time you're hearing this new information may have come out I'm actually recording this uh, only a couple days after the initial event took place so admittedly there may be available information now that I don't have so I'm not gonna speak to the current eventsy side of this okay there's gonna be information that I don't have that are that is available by the time that you are listening to this and so I don't want to speak to 
whether or not it was accidental, intentional. I don't want to uh, bring any of those imports into this discussion. I simply want to make a, a brief point about it from a spiritual perspective. Specifically, I want to talk about the danger of esteeming the recent burning of the beautiful Notre Dame Cathedral as anything more than the loss of a beautiful historic structure. Let me just kind of say that for you again so you get it. There is a danger in esteeming the recent burning of this cathedral as anything more than the loss of a beautiful historic structure. Now, I have friends and associates who are Roman Catholic, and so I am not here to deal with Roman Catholic beliefs. I think it's obvious that I disagree with a lot of what Catholicism uh, teaches, okay? Uh, so, but it's it's not my job to pontificate on that. Uh, I don't I don't feel called to that. So, uh, other than in the sense that when error arises in doctrine and it comes up and we need to talk about it, then okay, we'll talk about it. But for right now, uh, I, I just want to make the point from a Christian perspective that there's no theological significance to the burning of this building. There's absolutely zero reason to read any further into the burning of this building theologically. Okay, meaning that God has not somehow taken up residence in this building any more than he has taken up residence in the building of your local church. Now, now, do we esteem the local church building as a place where respect should be shown, reverence should be shown. Of course, this is the place, even though there is no theological significance to any building, it is indeed the place where we gather each week to worship God, right? I mean, that's what the church building is. That's exactly what we do. There are church fires that happen every day. In fact, a church that we used to attend here in North Carolina it hasn't been probably five or six months before it was burned up almost entirely. And that congregation had to relocate to their fellowship hall while the rebuilding efforts are underway. So understand that, of, of course, um, it's tragic. I guess maybe you could argue from an earthbound perspective that uh, it's a bit more tragic that this cathedral in Notre Dame burned uh, given its beauty and its historic significance. But there is nothing more theologically significant about the building of that church than the building of the church that I used to attend here in North Carolina that I just mentioned. Understand, friends, that theologically speaking, we are never attached to a church building. We are priests. We are, we have the ability to access God as much as anyone else does. When that veil was torn the day when Jesus died upon the cross, this is exactly what we were given. We were given direct access to God the Father through His Holy Spirit. And we were, upon the regeneration of our souls, made heirs with Christ. We are seen and esteemed as Christ is to the Father if we are regenerate Christians. Now, this is absolutely amazing. And let me tell you what, no clothes that you wear, 
no character that you have developed on your own, no church building that you attend each week is going to change any of that. It doesn't even affect it, honest to goodness, in the slightest bit. So uh, I don't want you to think that this punish this uh, th- rather this burning was a punishment from God or uh, a sign of the times. It-, it should cause no spiritual grief for the Christian at all. There's just no theological attachment. God has abolished all of those establishments. Now, of course, I disagree. Okay, with the doctrine that is associated with that church. Okay, in 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 very many ways so even leaving that on the table all we're talking about here is a beautiful historic structure now to the 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 worshipers of of that doctrine that believes differently than i do roman catholicism um that is uh closely associated with that church there may be some significance in the building itself and some of the uh, sacred artifacts and things that were in the building. Um, in a way, this is precisely my point. That's the theological divide. That's one of the huge theological divides. There, there should be nothing that we're so attached to in that church. And what it does, it speaks to a broader problem because I've seen a lot of evangelical Christians who express regret from a spiritual sentiment for the loss of this building. And just frankly, there is no spiritual sentiment tied to the loss of this building. I hate to say it harshly and for what it is, uh, and I, I hope you don't think I'm coming across as harsh, but that's the way uh, truly that it is. There is no argument to be made in Scripture for attachment to any particular building, not now that we are in Christ. So understand there is no theological spiritual significance to the burning of the structure. At the same time, there is no Christological significance to the burning of this building, no Christological significance to the burning of this building. Of course, this is closely related, but I just want to stress further the point that this building does not serve, nor has it ever served, any sort of redemptive purpose. No purpose when it comes to any kind of connection with God, especially not from a salvation perspective. No prayer uh, that is offered up. In other words, folks saying and prayed to Mary outside of this burning structure. We've got video. But there's just a grave danger in ascribing anything more to this than the loss of a beautiful historic building. And in my view, those who esteem this as anything more than that. Now, it is a tragic loss. Please, I am not minimizing this. I hope nobody was injured. I hope nothing was destroyed, uh, you know, uh, that was that was important in someone's heart. But the reality of it is, is that the theological divide here is huge. And those who ascribe more to this than the loss of a beautiful historic structure are, I think, in, in error. In, in grave error of attaching things to the gospel that ought not be there. Why? Because the gospel is essentially, right, that Jesus is enough. Jesus is the only way, and he is sufficient. The blood is sufficient. If all the church buildings in America were destroyed, the church goes on. I don't want to dive too deep into this, uh, into this uh, 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 jungle 
But if every Bible, listen to me, if every Bible were destroyed in the world, Christianity still lives on. Because Christianity has to do with the relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, it does have to do with the Word of God. God would never allow every Bible to be destroyed. Okay, that's a very hypothetical scenario. I'm just saying that the principle stands. We're saved in virtue of what Christ has done for us and has revealed to us through His Holy Spirit. Now, do we have other evidential means? Does it help that we have a reliable Bible, an inerrant Bible? I think yes, absolutely. Not discounting that one bit. I'm just saying that whenever we elevate anything above the level of of Christ, or even on par with the level of Christ, or even approaching anything near the level of Christ, we start to enter into error, possibly even heresy, because Christ is enough. I want to read to you just a couple passages of Scripture that will help uh, underscore the point here, and then we're going to get to some questions. All right, First Peter two one to five says this: Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies, and envies, and all evil speakings. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God, and precious, ye, as lively stones, by the way, that's talking about people, are built up a spiritual house, and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices, accepted to God by Jesus Christ. Of course, this is using the illusion, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. We have access, spiritual sacrifices. It's not in a building. It's, it's not in a building or what can be done in a building. It's in the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And finally, John 4 21 through 24, of course, this is John dealing with the, or uh, excuse me, Jesus dealing with the woman at the well. Verse 21 says, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall worship neither in this, oh, excuse me, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. Verse 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We have access to the Father. No building changes that. There is no theological significance, no spiritual significance to a building. God left the building industry a long time ago. He's now in the industry of building his church which is not invisible, I believe, in the local church. The church is very, very visible. But the church is built up of people, not buildings. Let's take a quick break, and we'll come back and answer some questions. Do you struggle to defend what you believe? Is it possible that you might be able to articulate your answers in a clearer way and give good reasons for why Christianity 
is true. If you have never taken the time to start to learn about the reasons why Christianity is true and how you can very simply begin sharing it with others, then I want to invite you to check out our free four-lesson email course. You're actually going to get six emails, an introduction email, four-lesson emails, and then a conclusion email that does tell you a little bit about our ministry. But these four lessons are going to give you the key things, the key answers that you need to be able to defend your faith with confidence. In fact, that's the name of the free email course, Defend Your Faith with Confidence. So I pray that you would go there to steveschramm.com slash defend. Check that out. Get signed up and we will start by sending you your first email almost immediately and then we'll email you for a few days after that and give you the tools that you need to start defending your faith with confidence right away. So don't forget steveschramm.com slash defend. That's steveschramm.com slash defend. It's absolutely a free resource, a free course that we wrote just for you. And we're super excited to share it with you. steveschramm.com slash defend. All right, folks. So thank you for allowing that quick break. And I uh, got some water in me and I am uh, good to go. So I want to uh, address a few questions. I got all of these questions from Quora.com. You may be familiar with it. And uh, maybe take uh, two or three of these uh, in, in an episode and, and try to answer them. And uh, we'll see how this goes. If you like this, if you like having more questions, a little bit more varied content each week, um, let me know. And I will try to pick questions that are uh, exciting. They talk about different elements of things. You know, maybe some of it deals with historical Christianity. Some of it is Bible questions. Some of it might be creation questions, science questions. So, I really like this idea of getting other people's questions and answering them rather than just pontificating on my uh, personal um, musings for uh, 45 minutes to an hour. So uh, I appreciate you, you hanging out and maybe you'll like this uh, way of doing things a little better. And of course, if you have a question, no matter what it is, feel free to ask it there. SteveShram.com, you can click on the button on the right that says ask a question and record the question in your own voice. So don't forget that you can do that. I might even come up with, in fact, let's just go ahead and, 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 and do it now. Um, if you want to ask your question on Twitter, if that makes it a little easier, maybe that's somewhere that you already are and you don't want to record your voice, why don't we just say hashtag ask S3. Hashtag ask S3. I don't know if that is in use already or not. Hopefully it's not. But uh, for now, let's just go with hashtag ask S3, S3 for obviously SSS or Steve Schramm show. You can uh, go ahead and do that and it will help us to know uh, what your question is. And maybe that'll be a little bit easier uh, place for you to ask your questions. So hashtag ask S3 and Hopefully from that, we will be able to find uh, your question. All right, so we'll go with that. For now, let's begin by answering this first question that came in on Quora in the Christianity section. What is it like to shift from a devotional reading of the Bible to a more historical, critical examination of it? What is it like to shift from a devotional reading of the Bible to a more historical, critical examination of it? You know, I love the spirit of this of this question, and uh, I, I think that I answer it a little differently today. And I've never really thought about it. You know, what is it like? Uh, but now that I'm I'm looking at the question, I, I do have some thoughts a, about that. You know, I, I realize now that it can be easy when you're first getting into apologetics and deeper theological kinds of studies. 
it can be so easy to neglect the devotional part of your reading. Frankly, because you can just get into the weeds so quickly with the uh, apologetics and theology stuff. And you can get into these deep word studies and you can get into uh, philosophical stuff and scientific stuff. And what begins to happen, and I know from personal experience because this happened to me, uh, you begin to disconnect a little bit from your devotional kind of of reading. Frankly, um, if you're not careful, you could become dispassionate about that because it's not deep enough or because it's not spiritual enough for you. Um, you'll begin listening to pastors and teachers and you know people who are who claim to be authoritative about the Bible who you could have listened to before with no problem. And suddenly, as you learn more about how to interpret the Bible, how the Bible interacts with outside disciplines such as philosophy, science, and things of that nature, uh, you'll begin to hear, frankly, mistakes that are made. Now, I make them too. Everybody makes mistakes. But I mean, you will hear uh, egregious, frankly, huge mistakes being made by those who you previously trusted to tell you nearly everything you knew about the Bible. And that's a real uh, reality. Uh, there are a lot of people who just don't understand the way that the Bible interacts with outside disciplines, and even a lot of people who don't understand actually how to interpret the Bible itself uh, to start with. And so the more you dive into this, frankly, it gets a little discouraging because the more you realize how watered down most teaching about the Bible really and truly is. So one piece of advice I would say is just not to get jaded. That's the first thing, is don't get jaded. Understand that there are people who do understand how to read the Bible, how it interacts with outside disciplines, etc. And there are people who will faithfully interpret the text. You're probably going to have to find a couple teachers that are, um, you know, uh, more well-versed in these things and are still able to make the devotional application to it just to not go crazy. Uh, and frankly, I've had to do that. I've had to stop listening to some people who I used to listen to, even pastors and teachers that I really, really uh, enjoyed because I just, it, it was too many mistakes. I just, I heard too many errors in reasoning, especially, you know, hermeneutics and stuff from the text. And it was just driving me nuts, frankly. Um, now, I say that, but at the same time, I want to say that you do have to adopt a spirit of grace. If you disagree, Hopefully, you find yourself in an environment where you can disagree, not publicly, but privately. You can disagree and say, hey, I, I, I disagree with you on the way you handle this passage. Is, is there? Can you, under, can you help me understand why you understand it this way? Would you mind if I asked you uh, about this other way of understanding it? Have you ever considered this? So maybe those are some ways that you can actually begin to make some headway with people who you want to keep listening to, maybe because they're really close to you or, or, or something of that nature, uh, and you're just finding yourself disagreeing with them more and more on the more historical and critical side of it. The second thing is, I would really, really try your hardest not to draw a distinction between a devotional and historical critical examination of it. Now, I understand that the distinction exists, but what I'm saying is I would, I would uh, encourage you to look for the ways that they intersect, not for the ways in which they 
depart. I love what Sean McDowell and Jay Warner Wallace talk about in their upcoming book. I'm reading it now for review purposes. Their upcoming book, So the Next Generation Will Know. They talk about some methodology that they use called TAB Worldview Training. TAB Worldview Training. And TAB stands for Theology, Apologetics, and Behavior. And I'm not going to give away everything that's in their book, but Essentially, what you're doing is you are showing that the theology and the, the theology, excuse me, and the apologetics directly affect the Christian life behavior. You cannot have a correct understanding of how you are to act and behave, etc., as a Christian, if you don't understand the theology and the apologetics first. Uh, which is really odd because most programs, most youth groups, most churches even get it totally backwards. Behavioral change is the primary focus. Theology is only brought in to support usually what someone's idea of that behavioral change is. And apologetics, um, sadly, is usually just left out. So what we have is, you know, uh, uh, BT training, and even that's incomplete rather than tab training. So what we need to understand is that while there is a distinction between a devotional read and a historical critical examination, we have to understand that they all work together for one ultimate goal, and that is to conform us as God's sons to the image of Christ. So when you're reading your Bible, you're going to have passages that really need to be understood from a theological, apologetic and behavioral perspective, and frankly, that involves both the devotional reading and the historical critical examination. So while I encourage you to understand the difference there and and, and not make any less of it, I wouldn't make any more of it either. I would do your best to find how those things intersect, and that's what's helped me a great deal, is understanding that my behavior, my morality, etc., as a Christian, as I grow and try to learn more about what God wants for my life, is determined on the basis of my understanding of theology and my apologetics, my reasons for believing why it's true and why it matters. So that's the advice I would give. If you are someone in that boat, you're starting to dive into more apologetics work, historical critical examinations of the Bible, coming from the more devotional angle, I would encourage you to um, to just take it for what it is and not draw too great of a distinction between those things because they all work together to conform us to the image of Christ. This next question is uh, it's a tough one, and you might not find yourself in this exact situation, but you might have something that's relevant and applicable. So this young lady is a, uh, a Christian, and here's what she says. She says, my boyfriend is Muslim. We have been together for four years. Yesterday, he told me he will not marry me unless I become Muslim. I'm so in love with him, but I don't want to be Muslim. What do I do? Well, there's a lot going on here. Um, Dave Ramsey, uh, Christian financial expert, has often uh, made this point somewhat in jest, but certainly uh, in, in, in truth as well. There are three things that uh, make it really difficult, uh, not to say impossible, really, when you're entering into a marriage. That is, a uh, huge disagreement with uh, one another's in-laws, financial problems, or religious 
differences. I might even add in there religious and political differences. These are the kinds of things that uh, entering into a marriage is, is not only unwise to do, but especially with respect to different religions, I, I frankly, I would argue that it's a bit unbiblical. Um, the whole concept of being unequally yoked has nothing to do somewhat to, to, to say uh, that it has to do with some sort of race, racial or, or cultural things. It's really not that simple. The concept in the Bible of being unequally yoked has to do with, uh, frankly, religious persuasion. It has to do with worldview persuasion. Uh, the ancient Israelites were having to deal with living around these other Canaanite peoples, etc. And what they were told is to keep themselves separate, to keep themselves distinct because they were different. They were God's people. They were chosen of God. They were not to mix, to become a mixed congregation, so to speak. And uh, frankly, that that's the reality here. Now, if you are already in a situation where you are married to um, somebody who disagrees with you, etc., uh, it is not your prerogative at that point to divorce them. That would be, uh, unless they leave you, etc., uh, that would fall under more of the biblical grounds of divorce. But my understanding of that whole issue at that point uh, would be that uh, you have the opportunity to win that person to Christ. However, I, I don't uh, feel as though it's right to go into a marriage expecting or even hoping or anticipating that you could win somebody over to Christ. You are going to have giant, giant issues. Think about when it comes to raising children, etc. Trying to raise a family uh, with two very, very different religious perspectives. Christianity and Islam both teach completely different things about the nature of reality, about the nature of God even. And it's just impossible to mesh these two things uh, uh, together. You're going to have a very, very hard time, practically speaking, but biblically speaking, it's just not right. It's just not biblical. To be unequally yoked is not to marry somebody who uh, it comes from a different part of the world than you or is a different color skin than you. It's not that at all. It's to marry somebody who has a religious persuasion, a worldview persuasion other than you because that always ends in disaster. And God knows it. And God tries to prevent it in the Bible. So that's the issue that you are going to have. In fact, the whole understanding of marriage in the Bible. Uh, Paul says it's better if you can be single. If you can be single and not commit any kind of sexual sin, then go for it. It's better to live a life completely devoted to God. But if you've got to get married, if you've got to get married so that you do not sin or whatever, you need to stay within that bounds of Christianity. You need to make sure that you are marrying somebody who lives and believes and is working towards the same goal as, as you. Keep that within the community. And I know that's hard because, like you say here, you're so in love with him. But you don't want to be Muslim. I mean, uh, the bottom line is it needs to come down to what you do more than just what you do or don't want to do. It's as a Christian, what does the Bible say? What does Christ say about you? What does, what does the claim Christ has on your life really mean to you? If Christ really has a claim on your life, then it should mean more to you than any other relationship because you can find your total satisfaction in him. And I know that's a lot easier for me to say removed from the situation. 
But from an objective biblical perspective, that's where we have to land. Finally, here's another question. What guides atheists to be good and stops them from doing evil since they don't believe that hell is real? Well, here's something interesting. Uh, Actually, I think the first half of this question is asked very, very good. And the second half of this question is asked very, very poorly. So let me explain what I mean. The first part of the question says, what guides atheists to be good and stops them from doing evil? I like the way you put that because the Bible truly does teach that the Bible uh, or that that uh, that God has given us a compass, okay, of sorts to guide us to do good uh, versus evil, uh, a conscience, in other words, he has he has given us, and this is discussed in Romans two verses fourteen and fifteen. Uh, and in fact, if you'll give me just a minute, I will. Uh, I didn't have it pulled up, but I can uh, quite easily go right here and get that pulled up, and we can take a look at what the Bible says. So it says this, for when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts demean while while accusing or else excusing one another. Romans 2.16 is also helpful in this. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So we do find that any objection with respect to morality, it has nothing to do with the epistemological question, that is how we come to know things, of whether uh, we can know what is morally wrong or right apart from knowing God. Um, Atheists have incorrectly uh, uh, leveled this objection over and over again, and it's just not the objection. The objection is not that somebody can be good uh, or can't be good without God. There are plenty of people who, in the eyes of this world at least, uh, might be considered to be much more morally good than me. They have the ability to uh, to donate millions and millions of dollars to charities that I just don't uh, have the ability to, etc. And so um, goodness is not determined by whether or not you know who God is. The question is not of the epistemological nature, but of the ontological nature, that is of the state of being. What is the ground of morality? What causes objective morality to exist in the first place? And that is the conscience that we all have and understand we can recognize by intuition in the philosophical deep sense of the word intuition. We can recognize when things are objectively good and objectively bad. So that's a good question. What guides atheists to be good and stops them from doing evil? Well, It's what God, it's the moral law that God has established in virtue of creating the world and in virtue of his character and nature. Morality is grounded in God himself. Now, that was the first part of the question, and it was structured very, very well. But the second part of the question is concerning to me. You say, it stops them from doing evil, since they don't believe that hell is real. Well, now, this is a different kind of question when you get to this part of it, because this part of the question has the implicit assumption 
that we do good as Christians. And I take it that you are a Christian. Uh, The person asked this question, I think they were a Christian. They might not be. Uh, I would have to go back and look. But especially if this person is a Christian, then I'm concerned by the way the question is worded. Because this question seems to imply that Christians are good because hell is real. But that's not at all why Christians believe the right thing to do is to be good and to follow God and his commandments. Um, as as uh, Greg Kokel has, has spent some time arguing, uh, Christianity is not a carrots and sticks kind of religion. In other words, uh, Christianity is not reduced to whether one goes to heaven or hell. Those are implications that follow from certain other uh, truths that come along with the view of Christianity. But it's not all that Christianity is reduced to. So it's not the reality of hell that makes somebody do good. It's the intuition of a moral law that we all have that causes folks to do good. And the Bible tells us clearly that God gives us that. Hell is the punishment that we all will face when we are judged according to our works if we are not redeemed and regenerated by Jesus Christ. But if somebody is doing good and trying to please God just because hell is real, uh, excuse me, because hell is real, friends, that is works salvation. That is trying to work your way to be good in virtue of a, a advocate that you do not have. You don't have the advocate of Jesus Christ if you are trying to work your way to be good. Or, or maybe you do and you're just, uh, uh, you have an incorrect understanding of theology, okay? But if you are trying to work your way and thus escape hell, in other words, do good because hell is real, then you have a misunderstanding of salvation, you have a misunderstanding of Jesus, and you have a misunderstanding of God and what his word has revealed about the nature of himself and about the nature of humankind. So first half of the question was really good. Second half of the question is is, is not good and frankly is quite telling and revealing uh, of what this person seems to think Christianity is. So if you have people who are making those mistakes, then uh, you can feel free to correct them on that. There are a lot of people who think that Christians do good only because hell is real. So I would encourage you to work with people and try to correct that objection uh, because it's just not true that people do good that Christians do good, especially because we're aware of the reality of hell. Those things are just not concepts that follow logically from one to the next. All right, well, I want to say thank you for joining us this week. Let's close up with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for the ability to answer these questions and to deal with these tough issues, Lord, uh, of apologetics and theology and even Christian behavior. Lord, we thank you for the ability to speak into the lives of others with these things. We hope and pray that they are a help. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for uh, checking us out here on the Steve Schramm Show this week. And I hope you enjoyed. Man, I really had a lot of fun with our interview with Mike Behe last week. That was just about as exciting as it got for me. I was really excited about that. Now, we've got some interviews coming up in in future days, future weeks, that are going to be very, very helpful. So subscribe to the podcast if you've not already. And uh, you can make sure that you get those new episodes each Thursday when they come out. And join us at the Facebook community. 
communitystevesram.com slash community to interact and uh, post your comments about this episode or ask questions in there as well. And uh, if you have any further questions, you can go to uh, uh, stevesram.com and leave a voicemail or Twitter, ask S3. So this show is about you. We want to be able to deal with your questions. Until then, we'll take questions from other places. But uh, if we could get your questions as you, the listener, that would be extremely helpful. And I think we can make an even bigger impact in your life. So thank you so much for trusting us with your time, for giving us your time to speak into your life. I love you so much. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.